Um, so, welcome everybody. This is a really nice gathering. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, my name is Wendy Earle and I chair the Arts and Society Forum, which is part of the Academy of Ideas, which many of you I think know about. But the Academy of Ideas has been running for hmm, about 15, 20 years now and um, organises an annual battle of ideas and um, the whole purpose of the Academy is to kind of keep debate and discussion lines open around a whole range of issues, any issue you can imagine. My focus is very much on the arts and the Arts and Society Forum has been running for I think about 11 years now, uh, just fairly informally and you know, ad hocly sometimes just organising discussions about the issues of the day focusing on the arts. So this um, particular session is the first face-to-face -face meeting <laughs> of the Arts and Society Forum for almost two years. I think it's almost... Yeah. <laughs> um, so it it's really gives me enormous pleasure to be organising it, to have you guys all here and um, to enjoy the discussion. Um, I have to say we did quite benefit from modern uh, technology over the last two years and used Zoom and organised quite a few different sessions which are now um, available as recordings on the Academy of Ideas website about the issues that the arts have faced, um, are facing today, have faced over the last couple of years um, in many different ways and also just looking at different for art forms themselves like learning a little bit more about um, you know, music and visual art and literature and that sort of thing. So we've had quite a few good sessions which are worth checking out. So today the focus is on uh, the future, though one has to, yes, to what extent is the future, um, you know, and the past and the present all knitted together. So we're kind of going to be exploring that. Um, did I say my name, Wendy Earl? <laughs> That's important. Um, and uh, I think the spirit of the discussion tonight is very much about thinking is can we break away, can we encourage a spirit of freedom in our thinking. Um, so I really am keen to encourage people to be very open about what you see the challenges to be over the next year or so in the arts, what you think the challenges are at the present. I've got some really great speakers who will kick us off. I've asked them to speak for about five minutes or so. And I've been a sort of a little bit um, what's, uh, procrastinating about exactly how I want to organise this discussion, so I'll kind of see how it evolves. I had one idea which would be might, if it becomes very contentious over the issues that people raise, we might um, have a vote at the end. But if there seems to be a lot of consensus and a vote wouldn't enlighten us in any way, I probably won't do that. We'll just kind of go to the pub. Um, so um, the speakers are actually we haven't discussed the order of speaking have we I've got so involved in talking oh, to people and we haven't told people where the toilets are oh we haven't told people <laughs> <laughs> the toilets are around the back Fine. okay yes they're sort of fairly easy to find and um, yes the fire exit is who knows downstairs so I've got uh, four speakers who uh, represent different aspects of the arts um, Vicky Richardson, who also I must thank for the venue because her father um, owns this space and has let us use it. And it's, it's actually really nice, isn't it? So I hope we'll use it again. Uh, Vicky Richardson is going to be talking about architecture. Her 
experience is very much in the field of architecture. She's um, head of architecture at the Royal Academy and has also uh, curated a show that's still on until the end of January, isn't it? Really interesting um, uh, photography show, very unique photography show, Helen Benet, that's right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and she, it's really worth going to see, I tell you. It's, it's absolutely, um, the photographs are stunning and a really interesting approach to photography and also to um, curating an exhibition because she minimises the labels for once uh, <laughs> and uh, leaves us free to make our own conclusions. So that's, that's very good. Um, then, Jonathan Grant. <laughs> so Jonathan is, in his sort of like money-making life, is in a... Um, financial advisor accountants and um, but he's his main obviously the reason I invited him is not because of that but because of what he does in his spare time which is as a theatre critic and um, I've invited Jonathan has uh, participated in a couple of my zoom sessions and I've found what he's had to say about theatre and the future of the theatre and the the challenges facing the theatre in the kind of you know current climate really interesting to listen to so I'm looking forward to uh, to his contribution then Rachel Jordan is um, a visual artist and uh, um, obviously that doesn't make her money, so she also <laughs> teaches English as a foreign language. Um, but she uh, has, I've known Rachel for quite a long time and she's been, you know, kind of explored the world, lived in Singapore, practiced art in all kinds of different situations and I think has um, some very interesting things to say about the visual arts, so that will be her focus. Um, and then Niall Crowley, who's... Um, Crowley, I've never actually asked you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've known, uh, despite not knowing how to pronounce his name, I've known Niall for a long time. And he's, um, his specialism is music. His passion is music. Again, that's not how he earns his money, but it's what he pays attention to. So um, I thought he would be, make some really interesting, have some good insights on, um, on music. The missing person in the room is Michael Nath, whose specialism is literature. And it's very disappointing, he had fall late last week and it hurt his back, so he hasn't been able to make it. But he did send me um, what he was going to say, and it's so interesting that I think I will read it out, so it can be part of the discussion, you can kind of take it into consideration. So I'll let these guys say what they want to say um, for the next uh, 20-25 minutes, and then I will read out Michael's um, sort of like, you know, what he was going to say and then I will um, uh, open it to the floor for your comments and discussion. Do you want to start, Vicky? Yeah? Okay. Um, Well, thanks everyone and um, it's really nice to to see you because I, you know, January, so it's it's so weird, isn't it? It's like kind of, I wasn't sure anyone was actually going to come out tonight, Um, so it's really good there's so many. Um, So thinking about the year ahead and predictions. I mean, for architecture, it's a, it's a tricky one because ar- architecture takes a long time. So the idea that architecture kind of responds to immediate trends is um, it's not quite the same, I'd say, as the arts. But then on the other hand, a theatre production probably takes three years to put together and a novel certainly takes a while to, to write. So in a sense, I think there's always a, there's a, the, the question of time and response and, and the, the kind of political, cultural climate we're in is never a, a, a straightforward one in that way. Um, so I've sort of divided my uh, <coughs> predictions into the good, the bad and the ugly, except that we're not allowed to talk about ugly these days, mm-hmm. are we? We're not allowed to make a, a judgment and say something's ugly. You never hear that word used in the arts, even though 
it's all about, well, it's supposed to be about aesthetics. Um, so instead of the ugly, I've got the contradictory, because that seems maybe more, more relevant for architecture. So for me, in this scenario, the good is what's unpredictable and unexpected, um, because I think for in the arts, what's the, the, the exciting thing about it is what takes us by surprise, and in fact, it's what we can't predict that is the most, the best thing about the arts. It's, be, it's seeing something fantastic when you didn't expect to. That's what really makes an impact on you. So for me, the good is, is the unpredictable. So in a way, that completely contradicts the idea of what we're doing tonight. Um, but it is the artists who emerge from nowhere and the unexpected hits and the people that actually go against the grain and do something surprising. The bad is more of the same, in a sense. It's the inevitable, it's the, the sort of predictable, the, continu the continuation of themes that dominate. Um, and sadly, I think we are in for a bit of that this year. <laughs> um, and the third uh, is the contradictory is, is possibly the most interesting thing, but the thing that um, uh, is, is hardest to grapple with and un to understand. Um, so as I was saying, one of the things about architecture is it's sort of caught in this tension between the need to respond to growth and society's needs and investment and development, um, whilst also being affected by the political and cultural climate that affects ev everything. Um, but I think that grounding in reality sort of keeps it going. And I think the other thing is that architecture moves slowly, as I said, and buildings that are due to complete this year may have been in planning for years or even decades um, so it means that, some, that we've got there are some highly ambitious and exciting projects that are going to open this year despite a broader climate of pessimism and you know general reluctance to invest and, and, and develop um, and one of that I want to flag up that I think is very exciting is the Grand Egyptian Museum in Giza that's opening um, later this year which is um, an incredibly exciting project that's actually been in planning for 20 years. Um, it's, it's an investment of something like £1 billion. Uh, the um, Hosni Mubarak laid the foundation stone 20 years ago, and it's designed by an Irish architect, Hennigan Peng. Um, and it's going to contain all the treasures of, of, of Egypt, and it's kind of one of these incredible, incredibly ambitious monumental museum projects that is really um, you know just simply going to we'll be able to marvel at all of these things 5,000 relics from tombs of Tutankhamun which are being transferred from another museum um, all, all kinds of incredible things anyway that will open in November and I think that's something that's, that's very exciting that perhaps bucks the trend maybe because of this time delay um, so quickly going on to the bad, the continuity, that's how I see it anyway, I think we are going to see a continuation of um, themes that have dominated um, the arts and, and architecture and the, 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 the main one perhaps in architecture is climate um, and I think that this has become sort of overriding concern with, within architecture um, which um, is... It, uh, you know, it, it's not all bad. I mean, there are still good projects happening. There's there's a lot of new technology being um, developed. 
and some interesting solutions coming along. But unfortunately, I think a lot of it is uh, quite conservative in some ways. And there are going to be two major exhibitions this year that will deal directly with climate. At the Royal Academy, where I work, the summer exhibition, the whole theme is on on climate, which is a theme theme chosen by the artist Alison Wilding, and and the architecture room will, will be part of that. Another major exhibition at the Barbican is called Time on Earth, um, which is on around the same time. And, and in the blurb it says it will present radical visions for the future of all species. <laughs> so, which to me is a kind of slightly contradictory um, statement because it sort of undermines the idea that radical visions, which I to me are an incredibly human thing, are... are are actually for, for all species, e- therefore equalising humanity with animals. Um, moving on, um, I think I think where this is ultimately going in architecture is sadly that that what's argued as the most radical thing in architecture right now is not to build anything at all, um, and that is increasingly what what you hear um, from the architecture <coughs> profession. And we've seen this at the end of the year, um, campaigns, people standing outside buildings, not very good buildings that are due to be demolished um, to make way for others. For example, a kind of very mediocre Marks and Spencers on Oxford Street, which suddenly became the focus of a, of a campaign by architects um, at the end of last year. So the building sector accounts for around a third of global fuel consumption and these statistics Um, inevitably lead um, a lot of architects to argue that actually the most radical thing in architecture is not to build anything at all. Um, So, um, I mean, for me, that's a negative trend, and uh, whilst not denying climate um, change is an issue, for me, the solution lies in ambitious proposals with new technology, with dealing with this problem at scale, um, and uh, there are people arguing for solutions at scale now, which I think is more interesting. But generally, uh, I think that the anti-development lobby is, is, is dominating. Finally, the good, where the surprises are. Well, um, this, is, this is a kind of a bit more tentative suggestion, I suppose. Um, but I'm hoping for a bit more kind of ambiguity and and debate and uncertainty in architecture and this is partly um, this is partly happening because as you know things tend to be fairly cyclical well postmodernism in the 80s seems to be coming back in fashion in, in architecture um, and now when I was actually in the 80s because I, I was when I was studying <laughs> I hated postmodernism and I was dead against it um, because it was challenging grand narratives and it was it was attacking uh, it was attacking the kind of the progressive spirit of modernism that I was all about and so I was and I and you know I was really critical of uh, all of my colleagues at architecture school who were into Jean Baudrillard and Michel Foucault and and so on um, and that was the fashionable thing and I was uh, going against the grain then um, but now I feel like I'm going against the grain because I actually find these things a bit more interesting than what we than what we have because I think at least some of these ideas were questioning the status quo they were challenging it they were actually raising questions which I kind of think now we need more of that sort of spirit um, and I feel like now the grand narrative is uh, 
the kind of climate narrative. And in a way, that kind of approach is some, offers us something quite refreshing. So I'm quite interested in this revival of postmodernism that's underway. Um, one of the things I'm doing at the Royal Academy is an exhibition about a, a postmodernist architect called John Haydock, who was, who was an American um, who I didn't, I didn't know a lot about, but I discovered him through this exhibition that I curated of Helen Binet's photography. And he um, designed a lot of structures, temporary structures in the 1980s, which are very, very kind of ambiguous, mysterious structures that are all related to 16th century masks. Um, these kind of never-ending allegorical performances. And in, in his mask, the architecture takes the form of a character which plays a role which, and, and, and then the subjects, the characters in, who inhabit the architecture also play a role. And what you see is an interaction between architecture and inhabitants with an unprescribed outcome. So I think that's... Uh, an interesting direction looking at these paper architects of the 1980s who were about um, ideas and challenging the status quo um, so I think that gives us a glimpse of hope for 22 thanks mm. that's great really useful really, yeah lots of really interesting stuff in there Jonathan do you want to go next right theatre so um, uh, Wendy really sort of posited two questions what can we expect from theatre and Prince Stewart and can we expect things to get better or worse so I'll pose my remarks by splitting the art of theatre into one the sheer logistical challenge of staging live theatre during a pandemic and two how the content of theatre is evolving uh, only last week Cameron McIntosh producing some of the West End's biggest shows spoke of the significant impact the Omicron variant has had on the West End and of the uncertainty surrounding the ongoing pandemic that is likely to continue for some time. And then yesterday, another, only yesterday, another major producer, Sonia Friedman, spoke even more devastatingly of the crisis facing theatre. Productions are being hit doubly by the impact of the virus on audience numbers and then by the impact of the virus on their cast and crews to even perform and deliver the show. And while Macintosh may operate some of the largest shows in town, he, together with his co-producers, co has some of the deepest pockets in town. So irrespective of his largesse, or lack thereof, depending upon your point of view, he is amongst those who enjoy the soundest of financial positions from which to consider their strategies. But for all producers, and especially those of lesser means, both in mainstream commercial theatre as well as in the UK's fringe, the pandemic continues to be terrifying. Theatre... Of course, and to an extent dance and live music, differ from other art forms because of the very nature of it being live. Movies and TV programmes are not only filmed in, hopefully, industrially COVID-secure environments, but are also increasingly created to be consumed in a COVID-secure environment too, via a private screen, be that a 60-inch 4K telly that you watch at home, or a 3-inch mobile phone that you can watch in a coffee shop. Theatre, however, demands the live shared interaction of actors and audience, and so while live or recorded streams of theatrical performances are increasingly available, ultimately these are a poor alternative. If the telling of a story was designed to be told via a screen, then its narrative would be drawn from a screen play. The clue is in the very description of the written work. 
The play script, by contrast, is designed for a far more personal telling, and when the writing for that three-dimensional piece of live performance is simply translated into a two-dimensional screen recording, a lot of the work's dramatic impact is lost. And so, while some producers may perhaps engage a box office star, e.g. Eddie Redmayne in the recently opened cabaret, and be able to stimulate a demand that both defies the pandemic and could also sustain that show's eye-watering ticket prices, such productions are likely to be the exception rather than the norm. For the West End, for example, to return to the healthy ecosystem that it was pre-pandemic, symbiotically supporting cafes, restaurants, tubes, taxis, hotels, as well as the direct employees of each show, there will need to be a major shift in our resilience to the virus, both mentally, in our attitude to risk, and physically, in terms of our actual level of protection from the effects of the disease. And only then will we be able to consider how the effects of, for example, working from home, and hence reduced office populations in city centres, and likewise tourism, or lack thereof, into the cities can either be reversed or adequately compensated for. Until then, it is likely to be smaller scaled, shorter run productions that expose most producers to significantly lower risks that are likely to dominate the industry. We can only wait and see. As for the future of content on stage, I fear that identity-based, or dare I say it, politically correct, casting and production values are likely to continue to hold much sway over content. I already spoke at last year's Battle of Ideas Festival of how the incredibly successful New Musical 6, in my opinion, glosses over, terrible omission, glosses over the brutal horrors of Henry VIII's misogyny. Well, I refer again to the recently opened Eddie Redmayne Cabaret as an example of further historic myopia from a show's creative team. There's a mini spoiler alert here, so plug your ears if necessary. The cabaret focuses on the telling of life in Weimar, Germany in the 1920s, 30s through the eyes of a newly arrived American writer, Cliff Bradshaw. As the story begins, Bradshaw is befriended on his train to Berlin by a polite and charming German named Ernst Lubitsch, who later on in the show terrifyingly is revealed to be a Nazi. And against this backdrop, the show's delicate tale of the rise of Nazism and its accompanying anti-Semitism plays out. But in this production, the role of Cliff Bradshaw is played by the very talented Amari Douglas, who is a black actor. And while we, a sophisticated modern theatre audience, can apply a level of colour neutrality to the role being played on stage, in casting Douglas, in my opinion, the producers have instantly dismissed Hitler's hatred for black people to the trash can of history, because there is no way on earth that the Nazi Lubitsch would have befriended a black man. And for the producers to depict such an occurrence happening credits the Nazi character, who by his very nature as a Nazi is deemed to be racially intolerant, with the same level of liberal tolerance as a West End audience, and it just doesn't work. Uh, it's a further sad sign of our time that having seen the effects of cancel culture close up, I shied away from making that observation in my written review that I was invited to write upon the show. Um, it was too sensitive to leave in writing. Um, those are my brief comments on what to expect from theatre in 2022. Do I expect things to get better or worse? From today's perspective, I feel the situation will get worse. Thank you very much. Yes, again. <laughs> Lots of content in there for us to chew over. Uh, Rachel, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Yeah.
Um, so I was thinking if we want to make predictions, we need to look back to be able to look forward. And 21 years ago on New Year's Eve, um, in 20, sorry, 2001, then was the night that I met Charles Thompson, who was co-founder of Stuckist, which was a, um, a house party in East London. Sounds really cool, doesn't it? <laughs> but anyway, it was interesting because we, we talked a lot about art and prior to meeting him, I'd already been questioning a lot the Brit art movement and the way it was being celebrated. Um, you know, personally, I found work by Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin and, and the other people involved in that so-called movement to be, you know, pretty shallow, superficial, um, just attention-seeking stuff. Uh, and we agreed and we felt that, you know, art needed to have um, better values um, attached to it. Um, at the time, Brit art was also uh, jumped on by the Labour Party and, uh, you know, it was kind of seen as the flagship of, um, you know, cr British creativity. Um, and, you know, it was used for a political end at that point. Um, coming up to today... Um, I would say the situation is even worse and I have more criticisms um, so two top level um, points are that within the art market um, there are um, artworks now which are existing purely as uh, NFTs or non-fungible tokens um, so this really happened um, last year in a big way there was an artwork by an artist who calls himself Beeple, and it was called Every Days, the first 5,000 days. And uh, to be fair to Beeple, he was already an existing digital artist and had been making work every single day. And I think he's reached 10,000 days already. And, you know, that's a huge level of commitment, so I'm not knocking him. But then 5, 000, the first 5,000 days of his work got collaged into one digital file, and uh, ended up being sold at Christie's um, for £69 million, pounds, you know, which is a ridiculous sum of money for something that isn't actually tangible. Um, on top of that, then Damien Hurst uh, did kind of typical tongue-in-cheek type of thing uh, called the currency, again, selling NFTs. Um, and this week, coming week, I think there's an image um, of Banksy, one of Banksy's works, which has been fractionalised into 10,000 pieces, um, and each one of those is going to be sold for around $600. Um, you know, some people might argue this is uh, a way of democratising the art market, well, firstly because the, art, the artists can go direct to market and adapt to rely on a dealer. Um, the second thing is that if ownership of art is allowed to be uh, divided up, you know, more people can afford $600 than $6 million or $69 million. Uh, Personally, I don't buy it. Um, no joke, unintended. <laughs> 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 um, uh, because, you know, for me, art is not about a digital file. You know, I'm looking for work that is tangible, that's got texture, that you know, it's something that you experience in, a, in real time, in real space. You look at it, you have an emotional um, response to it. It's something visceral. So as far as I'm concerned, it's pure capitalist speculation. A uh, few, you know, cowboys want to jump on it, make less money, fine. But it's nothing to do with art as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it gets lauded as this is really shaking up the art world. 
that's the biggest problem with it. It's not so much that it exists, it's more that the way it's talked about is as though it is this, you know, completely radical thing. And it's just on the level of what format is your your image. Um, so I don't think it's worth paying much attention to in terms of a real discussion about art, <coughs> but we have to pay attention to it because it's such a big uh, force because it's financial power and investors are you know, going crazy over it and the auction houses love it. Um, some art, art critics have come out against it, thankfully. Um, on the other hand, we also have um, public galleries and uh, public gallery directors being very keen to promote their art galleries as being socially engaged and promoting work that is um, you know, good for us or good for certain marginalised communities. Um, and they get to the point where they don't actually talk about the quality of the work at all. They just talk about what's it going to do for you as a viewer, is it going to change your thinking about racism or gender or disabled people or whatever. You know, I'm not against changing people's ideas about any of those things, but why do we have to use art to do that? Um, because the actual nature of art then isn't discussed. You know, we don't talk about um, the formal qualities, we don't talk about any emotional engagement, it's just, this is the message, uh, have you got it yet? <coughs> uh, especially, you know, and this is, I like the fact that um, Vicky mentioned the labelling because, yeah, sometimes I just can't read the labels in galleries because it's just too condescending and too patronising. <coughs> Um, and I think this was exemplified by also the Turner Prize last year because that was one, uh, sorry, all the uh, finalists were um, artist collectives and all of their work was about being socially engaged. Um, so it ticked all the right boxes, but I'm not sure uh, about the quality of the art. <clears throat> in addition, my local public gallery, First Sight in Colchester, they uh, are doing quite good work as a museum in some of the shows they put on, but. Uh, during COVID, they also ran a scheme which was to ensure that families who, uh, you know, poor families were able to bring their kids into the gallery for free lunches. Um, they ended up winning Museum of the Year, and I think they probably won it more for that social work than the quality of their exhibitions, uh, which again calls into question why these things being touted as the mission of a public gallery. Um, <clears throat> on the other, so I would say my prediction is that these two trends are going to continue and I, I'm not happy about either of them because I just think it means that what I would say is what's really important and essential about art for human beings is being sidelined and that's uh, problematic. However, of course, there are still you know thousands of artists all over the world, hundreds of thousands, however many. Uh, making work, trying their best to, you know, fit in, overcome the social isolation that they experienced through COVID. They've organised um, exhibitions online. <coughs> um, there've been residencies organised online. Um, it used to be that artists took over disused spaces like warehouses, but now there's retail spaces that are being taken over instead. So that's all positive, but. Whether the work that gets shown is challenging in any way, I'm not sure. I don't see much of it. Um, and finally, I would just say that um, the, the, the top-down trends are very influential, and I feel like um, to, if there are artists out there making work that is 
more radical or more uh, questioning things, I think it's going to be hard for them to get shown given the sort of dominance of these two trends. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, and Niall. Um, music uh, 2022 reasons to be cheerful uh, part one I think for the last 15, 10, 15 years there's been a real uh, musical renaissance I, I would argue um, especially after coming out of the, the dark ages of the, the 1990s and people like me who would have uh, almost predicted the end of popular music a few years back so it's been really refreshing especially over the last few weeks uh, looking into things more for, for this just the astonishing amount of you know, new genres, new artists uh, formats, producers, labels it's this, for me I think it's very very exciting but for popular music but also for, to some extent, for classical music. I've been a little bit involved in classical music in the past in amateur opera. Um, and I think there are some really interesting things going on. Um, there's probably lots of reasons for this, but the, the thing that jumped out at me, I guess, was the turn of the century, um, the demise of the CD and, and the kind of the, the, the breaking of the old industry, music industry model, I think, was quite important. And if you remember all of the... Um, you know the predictions of doom that we got mainly from the music industry that it would impoverish artists and everything like that and actually the opposite happened you know there was a, there's a, been a real explosion and flowering sorry to mix my metaphors of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of, 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 of music and creativity <laughs> yeah um, and, and I think what's important for me that really jumped out is the audience it gave uh, artists, musicians, the freedom to create and find and have a really direct relationship with their audiences. And people always are very critical of the audiences. You know, they they, all, they just want to listen to the old records, or you know, they just want to see this and want to see that. But actually, I think the audience and, and the public have proved themselves to be very, very discerning. Uh, and that's given artists and musicians the freedom to experiment or to go beyond the th you know the three minute pop song there's nothing wrong with the three minute pop song I, must, I might add um, you know so I think the public is, is, has been really really key and then there's um, the uh, you know social media has become really important we, talk, we hear a lot about echo chambers um, but you know one person's echo chamber is another person's uh, music scene you know the music scenes on, on, online are just phenomenal you know it could be a hundred or it could be a million you know you, you might not have heard of them you know, but uh, there's these kind of networks that stretch around the world and they're, they're very niche and they're very interesting, you know, from kids in their bedrooms to, you know, some very, very, you know, very interesting and creative things. So uh, I think that's something to be really excited about. And I think it has a, a, a maybe has a lesson for other forms of art, you know. So um, I think classical music's not struggling a little bit because it's more reliant on institutions for um, arts funding um, you know so more, more kind of cons conservative is probably the wrong word probably these days more, probably more, more, more woke really um, not overused word, word. so uh, I, I think maybe that kind of can show a way forward a little bit for, for other forms of art it might be worth talking about uh, my reason to be cheerful part two is uh, I've been thinking about the idea that maybe the uh, music world is a little bit 
more uh, able to withstand cancel culture and wokery, if you like, than, than perhaps other other forms of art. Um, you know, because it has that direct relationship to to music. Uh, this is me being optimistic, and I was thinking about, for example, Morrissey and the way that he is literally been cancelled by, you know, he's once the darling of the, the music industry and he's literally been cancelled by the, by the cultural elite over here. And yet he's bigger than ever, you know, he's, he's like a god in Mexico and South America and he has his own day in California and his music is going, yeah, he has his own day in 2017, I don't know that he's so now, but the, the Brits are trying to have him cancelled. Um, and also the idea that probably pick you up on this that maybe woke isn't quite wokeism isn't quite the thing to fear um, I, I've always been of the opinion that you should judge art on its own terms you know so especially when it comes to music is it good does it work as a piece of music regardless of what they they say maybe it's just because I just don't listen to what they're trying the message they're trying to to tell me but uh, that's that's always been my um, my take and I I kind of try, also trying to train myself not to listen to uh, the message, you know, so, I mean, I listen to NPR and uh, National Public Radio in America for a lot of music, and it is, you know, seen as the citadel of woke, and, um, you know, I, I have to try and just listen to the music rather than what people say, and that, and that you know, trying to be more open, really, and open-minded, um, I think has really helped me. Um, I guess the other aspect of it is um, is a more kind of identity obsessed or a woke perspective or sensibility. Can that bring something to art, or can that bring something to music, regardless of whether you like it? Can, ju- can you judge it in its own terms? Um, I found this uh, trans producer. Um, artist uh, recently over Christmas who's really weird and strange called goes by the name of Arca. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's another one where like millions of people have heard of him apart from me. Uh, and you watch him slowly transform. He's, you know, he, he goes from a, a boy into a trans character and, and his visuals and his music is, is very centred around the whole kind of trans experience. It's quite disturbing, but you can't ignore it. You know, it, it, it is pretty amazing. Right, just moving on. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Here's my prediction. Um, I've seen the future. Every time I go to work in the morning in East London, I, I, I see the future. Um, it might be the future, might be, might be its end, and uh, its name is ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much ABBA, but uh, it's, the, uh, it's the virtual reality auditorium which is taking taking place in Bromley by Bow and it's like this strange spaceship that's just landing. I didn't know what it was until the words ABBA appeared on it. And it's really quite an incredible, incredible thing where where it is. And I cycle to work past it every day thinking, oh my God, is this the end of music, you know? Uh, and then I try to be positive and think, well, you know, we could, you know, this it's uh, the, the, we're gonna watch the uh, not so fabulous four uh, go on forever and ever, but we could see the Beatles there, and we could see, I'd like to see Earth, Wind and Fire, or Jackie Wilson, or, you know, all kinds of people I would, uh, uh, legendary live, and what could you do with a space like that if you got, you know, a real uh, sense of creativity, what new things could you could you form out of that? So, yeah, that would be my uh, my one prediction for 2022, it opens in May, get your tickets now, they're on the left, uh, the future of music, so, yeah.
my optimistic point. Thank you. Yes, good, good contrast. Thank you. Um, okay, so so far we've had um, some really interesting insights into very different art forms, and I think that's one of the things that's really worth um, looking at is the way that different art forms are dealing with contemporary um, issues, whether it's sort of COVID or cancel culture or whatever, and how, what the responses are and the tensions between the sort of like uh, high-level um, kind of more elite sections of the art world who kind of impose, uh, you know, who might have finance at their heart, as, as Rachel was saying, or kind of social good, um, and, and the people are, you know, who are sort of consuming and um, enjoying art and might have a very different perspective on it. So that's something I think that's worth teasing out a little bit more. Before we go on to looking at um, the particular issues and people can sort of start preparing their thoughts on this, I'm going to read out what Michael Nath has said. Now, Michael Nath is a specialist in literature. He's a novelist. Um, he's working on a novel uh, that he um, it refers to right at the end of his comments, uh, focusing on The Fall, which is a post-punk group um, led by Marky e. Smith. And he, um, so he, and he's, but he's done, um, I think, three previous novels, very successful novels. I haven't got my notes, so I can't read them out, but they're on the website. Um, but his his comments, I think, you know, fall in, you know, somewhere in the general discussion that we're having at the moment. So let me read this out, and then we'll, you know, move on to the the sort of discussion. So he says, what can we expect of the arts in 2022? What we can expect is probably more of the same. This is due to the orthodoxy of the literary world, which won't be punctuated, punctured without an injection of that rare quality Dietrich Bonhoeffer called hilaritus. The orthodoxy is quite complex. I'll speak briefly about its political and artistic elements. The political element is probably familiar to you. The criteria of the literary world, publishers, agents, prize judges are less artistic than they once were and more obedient to the claims of identity politics or diversity so that the image or background or name of the author is now critical. The political element is unjust. Why? Because for all of the cant and slogans, diversity is not inclusive, it is selective. The defender of diversity will say, ah, but so it always was in the time of the white men. We just didn't notice. Now we're doing something about it, which amounts to an admission that the doctrine of the literary world is now redress, revenge, exclusion, even though every individual writer is here for the first time, once and once only, whatever their group identity. Many people are afraid to stand up to political orthodoxy. In 1940, George Orwell wrote that good novels are written by people who are not just who are not frightened, my italics. Good novels are also represented, published, awarded prizes by people who are not frightened. The artistic orthodoxy of the literary world has been a while developing. Creative writing courses, courses bear some responsibility for its development, along with our entertainment culture and our daily technology. It has now consolidated itself in what I call thin, easy, low-calorie or austerity writing, 
and Stephen Marche recently called a literature of pose. This is writing with next to no personality, no signature style, and critically no sense of humour. Now, if you agree with William Hazlitt that to explain the nature of laughter and tears is to account for the condition of human life, for it is the manner compounded of these two, where William Hazlitt was writing on wit and humour, if you agree with that, you might accept my contention that half of human life is routinely eliminated from the literary novel. You might even agree that it's afraid to be funny. <coughs> Artistic orthodoxy cooperates, or to be sharp, collaborates with political orthodoxy. This has brought about a suspicion of high style, energetic density and fat writing. When writing is informed by these qualities, the orthodox reader or mind can be sure what an author is up to or what they believe. That is why the market is dominated by a plain, precise, signalling kind of novel. I wish that the literary world would undergo a Baroque reaction against its own Puritanism. I wish it would learn to laugh again at itself, at everyone, at anything. God knows if or how this reaction, which is really an advance or upward move, might happen. Resisting orthodoxy takes some metal and regular practice unless you are well furnished with hilaritas, which Bonhoeffer, imprisoned by the Nazis for resistance and bombed nightly by the RAF, defined as high-spirited self-confidence in the face of all opposition. We had hilaritas once in my lifetime, in the words, music, spirit of Mark E. Smith, He's the fall guy. Uh, I'm trying to convey that spirit in my latest book. So that's to be looked out for. So again, I think what, um, what Michael is doing here is really emphasising the, the kind of dangers of falling into conformism and orthodoxy in the literary world. And we can really see that's a big force in um, society at the moment with the cancel culture of the publishers seem to be energetically engaging with and the banning and cancelling of Norman Mailer being one of the most recent J.K. JK Rowling's Um, and you know actually frightening number of other people who are being sort of uh, kind of squeezed by a new orthodoxy so um, lots of material there I think I'm not going to guide it too much because I think there's just so much to chew on and we'll just see how things evolve so Jane and then um, Martin and then Shirley. Yeah, Jane. I think I'm not disagreeing with any of the panel. I mean, describe my cultural read. Um, so I read a book by John Vandal called Snow, and, I, and he is a, a very beautiful um, author. I went to the Hamid at Tate Modern. Again, you know, I think an interesting um, and at times quite beautiful artist. And yesterday I was at the Barbican in which a new piece called Exiles was. Um, Produced or, or you know, uh, sort of choral work. Again, some interest, you know, there's sort of a, an email that was part of the call of a, chorus of a man in Covid and, and how he felt in Morocco. But I would say the thing that really struck me about all of those three works is that it seems to me the art is second order to a, a given political framework. And, and, I, and I think so, I think that is. The real difficulty for me now with artists in 2022 is there seems to be a, you know, the artist has decided here's a very specific political framework and a very, um, you know, ungiving, you know, it's there, it's absolute, and then they produce the art which 
even though you can see that the art world potentially could question that political framework, could have the possibility to explore and create ambiguities, they won't let it. So the artist, in the end, narrows their... Uh, the potential of what you can see they will deliver for something that they will not allow to happen. There's an ambiguity around a subject. Um, the, they may end up in a really different place to um, where they thought that political framework would be. And, I, and, and so I guess to the panel, do, do people feel like that? And how do you do that? Because presumably artists are just part of the Zyke, you know, part of the Twitter scenario in themselves, you know, they're part of people who've got these absolute ideas, moral positions, and even though they actually can produce really beautiful things, they come up against their own um, hardness, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing that I saw was the Get Back um, documentary of the Beatles, and that was... And that is creativity. I mean, it's just amazing to see those guys in a room that creativity, um, <coughs> you know, just that imagination, and that seems to be that freedom of the 60s, in a sense, and that freedom. So there was a sort of anti- an establishment that you're really knocking against, and an ability to be free in a way that it doesn't feel we have now, but is that me being nostalgic in the way Niall is proposing that actually there's a lot more potential in music? It, it doesn't feel to me like that at the moment. Mm. Uh, Martin? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> I'm speaking as someone who's involved in design, kind of connected to art, architecture, and all the rest of it, creative, and, and so on. Um, the way I see this is sort of twofold is that, much like Vicky's pointed out, and very pertinent to design and various other forms of creative output, is that we're in a culture right now where we're making a real virtue out of limits. So in design, architecture, I mean, I think Vicky said, or we talked about it before, you know, architects don't like concrete, for example. You know, they think it's a really bad uh, uh, thing to be involved with. Designers are obsessed by environmentalism, the climate, their anti-consumption, all the rest of it. But the point I'm trying to make in more general is, is that I think that it's not necessarily the fault of the designer per se, but it's rather the sort of the design establishment that they are a reflection of have kind of given up the argument around uh, kind of ambition, innovation even, and have really obviously taken on board and projected the whole climate limits in terms of what they can do creatively. I think there's lots of things in that we can maybe talk about. You know, one is the whole sort of, uh, uh, you know, Kind of combination to identity politics and all that sort of stuff. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that where the sort of the establishment have given up, what that has done also is sort of given more of an emphasis on the amateur side of art and design. Not that I'm against amateurs doing stuff like music, um, art, but it's a bit like the kind of Grace and Perry effect, as I call it. Great, I loved his programmes. But it seems to me the amateur is the only thing going on in town at the moment, making their stuff, which you can't really attack, but it's deeply personal, it's deeply driven by their own identity, and he makes a real virtue of, you know, you're, you're brilliant because of who you are, not necessarily what you're producing per se. I mean, it's a really weird moment where the technology is exacerbating, like NFTs and the rest of it, and music as well, brilliant things in music, but the kind of the real 
powerhouse of creativity, music and art, like the Beatles before, they're sort of not around, it's not apparent in the discussion. So all you're left with is a crisis of the, if you like, the artistic establishment, who are basically trying to rip themselves apart, and all we've got is the amateur who are left doing the stuff. Now, I can't be against homegrown art, but there's no balance to it anymore. And I think that it kind of the rot starts at the top. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Mm. Mm. Uh, Shirley, I think you? Yeah, then Fiona. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I might be disagreeing a bit with Martin, but I think it's true along similar lines. But it seemed to me that there's, um, particularly the last couple of years, um, which is you know, going to inform the future and the, certainly the, the foreseeable future, the next few years. There, there's a sort of, in the arts that you've been talking about, there's a division between what's, what's being created um, by the individual for themselves and others in an informal way, as perhaps as a way of self-expression. And I, I agree that in some respects that may be an inward turn and, and, and self-indulgent. But it seems to me, I've got the impression that it's also been a very liberating time because people have had the time, they've been locked in, and the creativity has, has got out, if you like. Um, and that music and art, I think, fall into that, that category. And then I'm thinking about more what is more formally created, i.e. theatre and architecture for public consumption, that is much more susceptible to the prevailing um, cultural sort of whims or fashions of the time. Um, and I think literature is a bit of a hybrid. I think in theatre, um, I've seen a couple of plays recently that were just exactly what um, you know you were talking about with cabaret. Um, one, and one was in France, uh, and it was about Alan Turing, and it was in, in, in Paris. And it wasn't about Alan Turing, you know, the, the father, as it were, of um, information technology, his huge contributing to it. But it was about his homosexuality and how that really was what the, his life was all about, which I think is really sad. Um, on the other hand, um, I'm also, I think, probably, uh, yeah, and then I was just going to say about Tamsin Gray, you know, questioning whether she should be playing um, a Jewish woman. Um, which is not. Um, and probably, again, on the theatre front, the best thing I've seen recently was a, a, a rerun after 20 odd years of Oliana. Um, and um, where I think we saw, but, but the way that the audience I was in was very, it was almost like there were two things going on. People were seeing it as a very woke sort of place. And others who I think in the outside thinking that this guy has actually, you know, held with this production and held on to their dynamics and, you know, sort of um, uh, aims and, uh, and, you know, what he was all about and what he was writing about. So what I'm saying is that I think this last couple of years has actually possibly opened up a lot of potential. And I think it's more likely that it's going to could be taken up informally in the way that you've been talking about, in different ways than we might expect. And so I don't want to see it all as Pollyanna maybe, but I don't see it all as negative really. 
Okay, good. I've got uh, other people wanted to make contributions. Anybody who's sort of like thinking about just asking a very short, simple question, don't hold back. Put your hand up. <coughs> That's also very welcome. People are making kind of quite deep, long contributions, but we also want um, you know challenges or short and sweet or whatever. So feel free. And if you're a little bit nervous, don't be nervous because whatever you have to say, I'm sure will be interesting. So. Um, Fiona, and then there's a couple of people behind you. Um, one thing that I've become quite conscious of, and I'm not sure if it's something that's new or not, um, it's just a, a real fascination with process. And, and I feel like that's something where social media and technology is really, really positive. And, um, and I was wondering whether it is a new thing. Because if you look on Instagram, if you're following artists, you get to see their paintings as they evolve, and it's utterly fascinating. And also, I mean, the fact that, that so many of us are prepared to sit down and watch, you know, get back and see these people just, you know, grappling with ideas and scream at them, telling them that it doesn't go like that, it goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't realised it yet. And uh, just seeing how that, that creative process works. And it's sort of the, driven by the pandemic to a certain extent. My brother's a musician and isn't, you know, wasn't getting gigs and then now he is getting gigs again, they're maybe to a smaller crowd so they're not making as much revenue so they're, they've opened up um, the, it's all sort of changed and they're doing like a rehearsal which is open to the public and you can watch it on Zoom before the actual gig and they're just, you know, picking out the tunes and they're rehearsing new tunes and they're, you know, preparing, deciding which ones to play at the gig and stuff so I think all of that stuff is really exciting and really positive but I was just wondering whether you think there's anything in that whole thing about um, a very tiny elite kind of deciding what's practical and deciding what's really good and what we should all be really impressed and bowled over by and whether this this kind of everybody else being fascinated with process is a way of sort of them just deciding for themselves what they think is really good and what they think is really impressive as well and there is a kind of real return to traditional methods and traditional, you know, methods of painting and people who actually really do excel in their craft are suddenly being really celebrated in a way that perhaps uh, a portion of the elite just aren't really noticing them because they don't see that as radical. Yeah, yeah. I think there's um there's some quite interesting in terms of thinking more optimistically. One of the things that does seem to be kind of um you know a sense of individuals kind of in a way ignoring. You know, in a way, you know, artists ignoring the art world, but just getting on with what they like to do. And I think that there's some interesting um, thoughts to be had there. Um, but I suppose one of the the kind of um, tensions one has to think about is the tension between the you know the small artists kind of getting on and you know earning their living in some one way, but doing their art as a hobby, you know, whether it's music or whatever, in the background and doing what they want to do. Um, and then those who want to break into the you know, the bigger spaces actually then having to, to be much more conformist and whether that's a sort of a trend that we need to consider. So I'm going to take a couple more people and then I don't know whether you guys want to come in. You don't feel like you have to, but I will give you a chance in a few minutes to come back and respond to anything you think might, you might want to pick up on. So you there and then the person and then Para next to you. Yeah, Joel. Um, yeah. Hello. Um, really interesting to hear everybody's points and there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. One, the overall optimism I really enjoy um, from many of you, but I did want to acknowledge Jonathan. I think there's a real fight for survival going on in arts over the next year or so, and particularly in the music sector as in the theatre. I think one of the biggest concerns is just going to be artists making a living, and there are all sorts, not only COVID, 
some of the things around technology, the way that artists are getting paid, and the people who are working in the sector. There are so many people who, at the moment, need to make that living, need the physical events for them to still go forward. And although people are really creative and being adaptive, doing hybrid events, it's like operating two different, entirely different functions. It's twice as much work. We're at this moment, at the start of the year, in a lot of the sectors where people don't know whether things in February, March, April will actually go ahead in physical format. And the great risk a money investment of time that that takes. So I think that's all really, really important to sort of recognize and not just be blindly optimistic, but actually people get their heads together and think about how they can improve that. The other thing that's really important for the music sector, but all across as well, I think, is technology, um, both in its creative capacity and how it's changing how people make art and consume it. So Rachel, obviously you mentioned NFTs and the hype around that, that's still in debate. In music and arts and tech, people are really experimenting with AI and although I, you know, I'm not convinced that AI is going to replace artistic humans, it is another tool that is affecting the kind of work and some quite interesting stuff. And if you want to go see some of that stuff, 180 The Strand, is quite interesting. Some of it is really interesting, some of it's a bit not, but I think it's a really good place to kind of go and look. And I was really taken by what Martin Shirley was saying about the whole art participation amateur professional thing. Because I think one of the biggest challenges at the moment really is that we have a government that doesn't care too much about art. When Nadine Doris came in as cultural secretary, you know, she was, she was interested in a, a new museum for Liverpool for the Beatles, which brings me to the other thing that, um, that at the moment there's a lot of focus on heritage, on nostalgia. Of the top 10 albums of 2021, four were Queen, Fleetwood Mac, Elton John, and I can't remember the fourth one, but there is a real moment where people are holding on to their security and what feels familiar and safe rather than sort of focusing on you. And for any sector to develop really, really well, it has to move, you know, focus both on participation and I think that's really wonderful that people have really returned to a creative spirit. But there has to be that professional sector with quality that needs investment, needs to be in education. You know, there's a whole conversation about arts and science at the moment, which is almost putting creativity as if it's separate from art, that it's, it's this sort of magic thing that creativity imbues everybody and that it can be used for science and it's the same kind of quality. And I, I don't think it is. I think the really interesting intersection, but they need to be really sort of I think we just need to keep the pressure on to that art should be valued in our art itself. Really useful points, yeah. Uh, para. I've got a question and then a, a quick comment. Um, questions to Vicky, really. In terms of the curators you work with and everything, I'd be interested to know, uh, from the outside, and when you read and go to exhibitions and everything, you do get the feeling that uh, there is a real defensiveness uh, amongst curators, in, uh, you know, defensiveness in the sense that they feel that they have to somehow reflect some of the uh, trends in society that people have mentioned, 
And the reason I kind of asked this is because I went to a, the exhibition on Peru at the British Museum recently, and it was all about uh, Peruvian civilizations going up uh, to the Incas. And, you know, fairly, uh, they probably could have done more with the stuff they had, uh, but um, in terms of them going through the civilizations, you know, factually, they talked about it, you know, uh, in where uh, children were sacrificed uh, to the gods, uh, or if the army that won uh, all the defeated soldiers were sacrificed, that kind of thing. Until it came to the Incas and the point about Western civilization. And it's quite interesting because the message there very much was on the destruction to the environment in Peru, to the people in Peru, uh, you know, ravaged by disease, that kind of thing, which you can understand, of course, you know, when people mix and, you know, you're bound to get disease and destruction. But the whole optimism in terms of what development brought was not even talked about. There's nothing, not even a line about the fact that Western civilization, the touch with Western civilization meant this, 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 that. And you kind of wonder whether the message very much is anything Western you know, it kind of creeps in into the whole presentation. Anything Western is bad. Uh, anything which is uh, environment protection or, uh, you know, one with guy or the world or any, uh, with, the, you know, with nature is good. You couldn't help, you know, and it could be because I'm already reading a lot about these things, so I might go in, uh, you know, thinking, <coughs> making more of what they said. But, I just wondered whether that was a trend, really. Okay, so I've got some other people who want to speak, but I'm going to let these uh, four say something now, if you want to, and then we'll come out to the audience again. Um, yeah. Jonathan, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. sure, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference a few points that have come from the floor um, that I've been noting down. Uh, Jane, you, you commented about artists almost self-censoring themselves. Um, and I think it's a very, I think it's a very fair and sad thing to say. I think it's quite an accurate thing to say. I think for any artist, I think it takes massive courage on their part to swim against the tide of accepted doctrines and accepted thinking. I saw this for a while when I was being particularly outspoken five years ago at the time of the referendum, and I was stating my opinions, which chose to be towards towards a a. A, uh, a leave rather than a remain perspective and and what I found in the arts world I was in a very very distinct minority and it was a few voices that were actually messaging me privately through the private channels of Facebook or, or Twitter to say completely agree with what you're saying it wasn't a huge number but it was enough to make the people who were saying agree what you say and uh, sadly we're unable to express those opinions because that will hit our livelihood um, and it was a very I felt very proud that I provided a small mouthpiece for these people but very sad that that, that, that was the reality um, comment on that you raised about the physical events and the lack of physical events um, I, I completely agree and in live performance it's, 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 it's massive and it's devastating and it's not interestingly something that of course has hit film and TV because thankfully the film and TV sector has once the first lockdown passed 
um, and I've got a number of clients who work in film and TV, one in particular in the makeup, film makeup business, very, very successful business. And I was saying, God, how's business for you? And she was actually saying, well, it's brilliant because all these actors actually now need individual makeup kits to be purchased for them. So the volume of makeup sales that this company was delivering had gone up incredibly because of the nature of COVID and security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very small comment and a spin-off. But, but the aspect of live performance in whatever way it may be, has, has, been, has been devastating. Um, the, the final comment that I'll pick on is, is uh, the, the reference that was made to the familiarity, going to see work that we're familiar with and the number of albums that were sold last, last year, popular albums. This weekend I went to see West Side Story, the movie. I went to see it marginally sceptically, wanted to see what all the fuss was about, you know the music inside out, back to front. Steven Spielberg has done the most beautiful, beautiful treatment. Certainly, if, I won't, won't necessarily say that some of the how the wokery has been applied to some of the narrative, but the songs and the performances of the songs just destroyed me in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I think there's a really strong message there. Of, uh, when Rita Marino, who takes over from Anita, from 60 years ago, in the role of the film, she destroyed me to a blubbering wreck in a way that I've never, ever been in the cinema. And... Um, I think this looking, this craving of familiarity is something that's very, very, very relevant. Um, there's loads to think about. Um, I was, yeah, I, I thought Niall's um, points were really interesting, got me thinking about whether, yeah, these parallels in art forms, whether, whether there's anything, because you, you were so positive and, you, you know, it's great that you kind of identified all these good new things happening. I was thinking, oh, God, maybe I've been a bit downbeat. Where can I find those nuggets of creativity and excitement within architecture? And you obviously can't really, um, you know, you can't, you can't sort of do that Really, but on the other hand, can you? You what you were saying was, you know, you just you just close your ears to the to the narrative or the words, you know, and, and with music you can appreciate it as an abstract form, can't you? I suppose you can. I mean, music does have narrative, but the narrative in music is perhaps um, you know less strong than it might be in literature or theatre, um, perhaps. I mean, architecture is similar to an extent in that it doesn't. You know, it exists as, a, as an abstract art form. Often people do talk about a parallel between music and architecture. Um, there is narrative in architecture, but again, you can ignore it if, if, you, if you choose to. And I think, you know, maybe that's partly what we do need to do is kind of ignore the context and the message that is often, you know, the establishment, the institution is trying to get across and simply appreciate the work on its own terms for itself. I mean, I certainly felt going to Lubaina Himid at the Tate. I, kn I know the Tate has an agenda there, um, but I was blown away by the exhibition. I absolutely loved it. And I was certainly able to appreciate the work on its own terms without, you know, whilst also knowing that Tate clear you know will will have had their their agenda and their decisions for putting on that particular show i think you can probably do the same in the peru show at the british museum or you know you can apply that everywhere and and um, and that, and that's that's really important because i mean every every climate in a way comes you know there there are decisions made particularly by institutions um i mean i think that 
the, the, the defensiveness you, you mentioned in institutions is my, my experience at the Royal Academy at the moment is certainly of an institution that's in defensive mode, that's making decisions based on a lot of the time on fear, um, you know, the fear of being exposed or uh, attacked for one thing or another. And so, you know, and that's not a good position to be in. And I'm sure lots of institutions are operating in that way. I mean, the RA in some ways is protected because it is run by artists. You know, the Royal Academicians really do run the RA ultimately. And so, and they're very keen on the whole, on all of the traditions that go back 250 years. And in a way, tradition can protect you from some of these sort of political trends that, you know, end up making institutions blow in the wind one way or another and seem to, you know, throw away all of their principles. At least the RA has a really strong sense of tradition, which um, I never thought I would say that, you know, because in some ways the radical position is to attack tradition but in some ways today I feel like the, the, the thing that allows you to be free within an organisation is sometimes referring to a tradition of artistic freedom for example which I often do at the RA to justify things and say you know we have a tradition and we did sensation in, in the 90s or um, uh, the RA has always been a place for artists to, to express themselves and that tradition is suddenly becomes very very important thanks Niall um, yeah, I was starting to worry that I was being uh, naively optimistic <laughs> <laughs> I mean I can certainly see everything that everyone's saying and I could uh, you know I, I, as I said I, I kind of thought music was popular music was uh, was over uh, about 10, 10 15 years ago most, most of what was happening was passing me by and I have my head buried in 50s and 60s music um, but uh, I think 2022 let's take stock um, see you know what's good and what's bad and I, you know kind of I took my phone out my pocket my new phone out of my pocket the other day and Spotify was playing there's a little whole little concert going on in my pocket and then you press the button and the lyrics come up and I never listen to lyrics I mean I, I perhaps because of this I uh, uh, there was a little thing on Facebook yesterday about Elvis Costello. There's an article about him, and they were talking about Oliver's Army. And I, I kind of thought, I know the lyrics of that, and I looked them up. But I thought, 44 years, and I'd never bothered to even <laughs> think what that song is about. And I, I kind of quite like that singing along to something and not quite knowing what it's about. And who cares, really? I know the little, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And um, but it's sometimes it's the sheer force and beauty of the art and music that carries you along um, that's what I mean by look, what you were saying about West Side Story um, you know the force of a voice just carries you off I, don't, I haven't really got that from I mean from, from much of the music I've been listening to and thinking wow that's interesting I've never thought of anything like that before this archa character uh, uh, the trans uh, artist uh, who I only discovered last week we, see, we released four albums one a day kick one, kick two, kick three, kick four <laughs> he'd never been able to do that before and he probably shouldn't have done it but uh, um, all weird you know, and, and probably more interesting and experimental a lot of stuff that's going on in the classical world so I guess I think you know, well, let's just hang on for the ride and see how it goes so there must be something optimistic to look at in all of this Rachel? 
Um, yeah, I mean, even though I did give uh, fairly negative predictions, I mean, I do, you know, I'm optimistic as a person, and I, you know, if you look at the history of art, then, you know, something new always does come along, and, you know, maybe it's, with music it's different because you've got, you know, there's hardly any person in the world who doesn't like music, so you've got a different, you know, the audience is global, whereas art, visual art is a much more specialised interest, really. Um, so... Maybe it's just too early to say, because I, I feel like the pandemic has been such a sort of, um, you know, what would I call it, a kind of, I think someone I read called it the interregnum. So it's like, you know, there's nothing necessarily new happening, but maybe the old is gradually being rejected. For example, um, you know, art students haven't been going into studios in their art colleges for maybe a year, if not more. and. Actually, maybe the fact that they're not being influenced by their very, you know, very directed <laughs> lecturers could end up being a good thing. Um, I went to the uh, show at the Saatchi Gallery yesterday, which is uh, work by all Masters of Arts graduates from London colleges in the past year. And um, I wouldn't say it was great. Um, uh, what I did notice was I thought most of the work was just about sort of quite private individual concerns rather than anything commenting on society as such. But equally, it wasn't touching on most of the sort of tick box themes. So, you know, maybe we, it's too early to say. Um, also, I, uh, the two sort of works that I found interesting, um, one in that show and one in Bloomberg, Bloomberg New Contemporaries, was... Um, work by two artists who are doing about Hong Kong and the pro-democracy movement and even though neither of them were being particularly um, pro-democracy movement probably because they maybe are worried about being too one-sided both of their presentations were quite balanced showing both sides um, but there was a level of sort of commentary on society that I felt was missing from a lot of other work so you know, I think we also have to remember that, um, you know, it might be that politically it's it's about what's going on in society and nothing's really happening here yet in a more radical way. And, you know, art usually does reflect society. So um, <coughs> let's hope something happens. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that so, sounds too vague, but anyway. All right. So I've got, you'd like to speak. I'll come out for another round. Um, so I've kind of got a question to the panel and then one uh, sort of challenge for Jonathan. Um, so can we be optimistic? Is art always going um, through trends and, or um, trends and orthodoxies at the time emerge from that? Or will this obsession with social justice be just a passing trend or will it persist into art going forward? And then for Jonathan, you made a moral case about the beginning, um, about the, at the beginning about black struggles being represented in theatre. Isn't this hyper-moralism of art exactly what we're fighting against? Just because something can be morally challenging doesn't mean it should, and this could constrain certain artists. I'm not convinced the art would be better by having a white actor. Doesn't art reserve the right to be factually inaccurate? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, Jan? Uh, I wish I'd heard all of that. Speak up, so you I go. I wish I'd heard all of that, but I'm slightly deaf. It sounded interesting. I start from the idea that art should be part of life, not part of the art world. And I think the art world is a very separate thing from what I think art 
as, as part of human existence should be. So I'm not pessimistic um, on the basis of what's happening in the art world. Um, I'm actually very optimistic because I think that the human spirit will out and that I'm not, I, I think that, 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 that surely you should be optimistic about the democratization of art through technology. Um, I think that artists should always be ducking and diving. I think that artists need to be need to take risks, and although we need, artists need an element of luxury, um, I also don't think that society owes artists a living. And I'm optimistic that, that art is still a, is happening in the interspaces of society. Um, the point I was trying to make about Manic was that when I first moved to Birmingham, nothing seemed to happen. It was just this horrible racism. And if he lived there long enough, he began to realise there was all this stuff happening under, under, under the radar. And I think that today there's a trend for art to be happening under the radar. And it's outside the art world and outside the art galleries. And um, I think we should be optimistic about that. Okay. Um, so Harley and then you and then Jason, yeah. So uh, I'm most interested in music and I'm usually very optimistic about it and I'm always finding things that surprise me and that I enjoy and keeps it interesting but I'm afraid Niles um, <laughs> the contributions provoke me to a pessimistic <laughs> <laughs> um, so just think about the 60s pop music the sort of apex of real pop, of pop music in terms of quality and quantity uh, what was in the air then there was folk music just part of our culture the Beatles they grew up with the British songbook at school um, you had classically trained songwriters and, and musicians to a very high standard everywhere. Uh, they had experimental music around, which people knew about, and, and was you know, very um, radical often, but, you know, uh, and would give people something to aspire to in terms of knowing there was more possible, and a general sense of optimism as well. And the tension between all these different factors fed into you know, beautifully crafted, distilled three-minute song which have become part of our culture and standing the test of time. But if you think about now, well, folk music is pretty much gone um, from culture. Classically, uh, classical training is now you know, being sideswiped to the private schools and a few other places. Experimental music, still a lot happening, but it's very much underground and it's got disconnected with the, the, the mainstream. Uh, and there's not so much optimism around. So I think, you know, Nile is right, there's a vibrant music scene, lots going on in different ways, but for me, there's so much, uh, less and less of it is landing and becoming something that actually makes a sort of cultural impact and will, and will stick around. Uh, and I think that's because the pool of ideas, <coughs> sentiments and, and, and so on that it's drawing upon has been in slowly impoverished, sadly. Uh, and you can hear those diminishing returns in, in, in the sort of things that it, basically it feel like a lot of music now is pastiching things you've heard before. So that's my, uh, my pessimistic side. Uh, uh, to be more positive, uh, Michael was right. Um, we've got the fall. We've got 40 years of, of brilliant music, uh, about 600 songs. If you don't know them, go check them out. Um, a radical example about how to make, um, you know, to carry on being uh, exciting and creative across a whole career, and people are only just getting beginning to get to grips with it. So go explore. Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Rush. Uh, I had a question about uh, about criticism, uh, criticism across across all media. Um, seems to me that the criticism plays an important part, a part of the general ecosystem of the arts. And um, there's usually a back and forth. It, it sometimes has quite an important check and captures zeitgeist quite well. And 
um, also advertises things to the public quite well. And what I think has happened is that uh, criticism of late has, has had a notable decline, um, partly due to the, the decline of print media in general, um, but you also have blogs and things as well. The bigger issue seems to be um, fear, and um, Jonathan, you made the point about um, you know, being quite worried about uh, being very frank about making what should have been about five years ago a very obvious point about um, that particular, particular production. Um, however, um, despite the fact that um, there is this, this sort of decline, um, is there a cause for optimism? We've seen um, new publications such as The Critic that seems to be a lot more out there, a lot more uh, bold in the way that it uh, um, it approaches art. Um, and uh, we've also um, seen the rise of um, things like cheap news, alternative media that's not doing art quite yet, but might move on towards it. Is there some cause for optimism? There's also the free speech union, obviously, which might afford some protection to critics. Um, do you think there's cause for optimism um, and a revival of art criticism? in the way that it used to, be, used to be exist. Uh, Jason, then I want to say something. And will any other people want to any, make any final comments? It's your chance. And then we'll go, yeah, Jason. I've got a practical question from Jonathan. It's my um, uh, New Year's resolution to go to the, go to the theatre. So I've been spending the week signing up to all the mailing lists and everything. So who's doing good stuff? And what should I going to say? <laughs> Very bottom line. Okay. Um, I I just wanted to um yeah, the, I mean the optimism pessimism thing is is a difficult one, and I think one of the things I find when I'm thinking about the arts, um, I, f- I feel on the one hand there's a the thing about the you know about human beings is that you know people are creative and inventive and entrepreneurial and however bad things get it's amazing what emerges from any kind of society but I think that unless the society itself has a sort of a sense of possibility and, and vision and w- unless there's a sort of a, a kind of the, you know the pr- more prosperous sections of society if you like have sort of um, a sense of possibility so much gets lost so if you think about you know history the stuff that we see now is the stuff that you know, the elites have paid for and looked after and nurtured and, um, and and kind of, you know, created a canon around. And I was, um, there was a Facebook post recently by a friend of um, this absolutely exquisite cult, uh, sculpture, marble sculpture of, um, I can't exactly remember, it was like a figure trapped in a net. And every string in the net was carved in sculpture. And it was a large figure, and when you look at that, you just think about the, the skill of um, working, but, but the very idea that you could even do that, you know, and then the time and the prosperity required for that thing to be created and then saved and looked after and, and kept. And I, I feel like that is a very big thing that's missing at the moment. So there's a sort of like a huge, you know, the, the, one of the big problems we face is that the elites... Um, don't really like art as art. They're not interested in art as art. They're interested in art as money and they're interested in art as social engineering. How can we use it to get people to think differently, to, you know, moralise, you know, how can we use art as a kind of a moral moral force, moralistic force. So I feel like there's a lot of scope for optimism because there is that always, 
you know, that always sense of rebirth that is always with us. But there is something in society at the moment that means that a lot of the good stuff that gets created also gets very quickly lost, and that is something that really concerns me quite a lot. Um, so I think Martin wanted to say something. Let's study first, because he hasn't said, and then Martin. And then, yeah. um, I just wanted to say that a couple of months ago with a friend of mine, we were um, discussing uh, wanting to set up a group specifically for dissident artists. Um, I'm naturally dissident, and so is he. And um, although he's not, he's more interested in the art world. Now, what I found, and I didn't do a great deal of work in this, was that certainly in terms of visual arts, you know, cartoons, animations, filmmaking, the type of medium which is kind of falls in quite naturally being dissident arts. Much more difficult with music, as you were kind of saying, um, Niall, you know, you know, to, to actually kind of like boom, punch. Um, and um, the thing I discovered, and I didn't do a lot of work on this, I had no problem in getting people who wanted to come and speak who were older from my generation. No problem whatsoever. But what I was much more interested in, actually, because I know what my generation like, was getting people like yourselves, who are younger, to encourage dissident art. And I know that there's plenty of artists who aren't interested in dissident art anyway. And um, so, and I didn't explore it enough, but I would, have, I would love to see something like that happening. I would love to see it, because I just don't think there's enough of it going on. That's all I want to say. Okay, um, Martin. Um, <clears throat> just a quick point. I mean, I always like to ask this question of artists. You know, given the big moment five years ago or so, with the start of the B, ends with uh, exit. How can I say, be slightly provocative, but do you think the art world or artists in general are still in fear of the public? Um, because I don't see, I'm being very generalised, but I don't see from, ne- from then until now the art movement, if you can call it that, has really responded to that immensely creative moment that the public made. They took the most incredible risk of the unknown. I always find it really extraordinary that the art community, if you can call it that, didn't respond uh, and, and sort of meet that need. So, you know, is the art world still in fear of the public? That's my question. I'm saying all of it. I don't discriminate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, my comment was slightly optimistic as well regarding um, NFTs and their growing popularity. I was thinking, like, don't you think um, it's opening a market to an audience that wouldn't have necessarily thought about um, purchasing art and they're now sort of like interested in it um, because it's now in this sort of digital format? Because um, I feel like with NFTs especially, it's sort of like um, a more popular with sort of like millennials and like Gen Zs and whatnot. Um, you weren't typically sort of like used to these sort of like artworks or, or whatnot, but um, they sort of like um, gathered an interest in it. Um, fair enough, they're not in like these physical mediums anymore, but um, I think there's also an avenue for that to be incorporated later on down the line, um, whereby you get the digital sort of format and then you get a piece of art as well. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, okay, so we'll let our speakers wind, wind things up and then we can finish the wine and go to the pub. 
Uh, Rachel, do you want to be the... Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't disagree with you because, um, you know, whenever there's a new market or some kind of innovation, then it, it, it probably is going to lead to different people being interested. But I guess my reservation, which is quite a big reservation, is it isn't really art that they're getting into. Um, you know, because you have to look at which kind of artist's work is being sold through NFTs. Um, it's either really big name artists, um, clearly it's been, you know, like they're, like brands, you know, they're in the brand, banks are the brand. Um, so, is it really art? For me, it's just, you know, an image on a screen. Um, but, you know, I don't discount it either because then maybe if it stimulates someone's interest and then they go and then think, oh, I wonder what this, you know, I wonder what art really is about. And they wander into a gallery because, you know, things are reopening, then, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say, no, it, it couldn't happen. But um, I think it's a poor way to have your first experience of art, let's say. Um, and I think, oh, you know, as a more general trend, I think that's what that was. That's what's worried me about the pandemic in general is that people, you know, haven't been going to the, the real theatre, they haven't been going to real exhibitions. You know, everything is sort of just through your screen at home. And, you know, I don't think that's how we should live. And um, to Jan's point, you know, art is life. And I don't think life should be mediated through a screen um, because I don't think you get the emotional connection through it. Okay, uh, no? um, Okay, just a couple of points. So, I want to pick up on what you were saying about the critic, because that's <coughs> something that has been popping in my head all, all, all through this. Um, for a while, um, I've been listening to things like Spotify and finding myself slightly um, influenced by the by the by the algorithm um, and, and resisting it for quite a while. And then I, I suddenly thought, am I being a slave to the algorithm? Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 and then is that shaping my taste? You know, it's picking on, on what you on what you, you think you listen to and guide you in a particular direction. But 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 more broadly than that, in terms of uh, music criticism and, and writing, there seems to be there's some really really good quality music writing and music journalism. You know, like Pitchfork and and uh, uh, springs to mind, but. They never say anything's bad. You notice everything they, 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 they turn into an art form, talking about bland. You know, I, I get their Sunday, Sunday uh, uh, email thing, and you think, "Wow, this sounds really great." Really, you, you really like that, and they're, they're really good at saying something is is uh, is fantastic. And uh, NPR, as I was saying as well, their New Music Friday and all of their music programs, they dare not say anyone is bad. And it's it's kind of like, maybe it's because I grew up on those kind of is it round table the radio one thing in the eighties where everyone was in that's that's absolutely terrible you know um, so um, yeah I'm kind of it, how do you navigate your your way around in music terms anyway all of this you know new music without a critic that's that's quite an interesting dilemma you know but but I think there is good writing um, and just briefly on the. The nostalgia thing. I, both, I think you both talked. Uh, uh, you talked about nostalgia a little bit, and you talked about 
the 60s. I, I, what struck me over the last few weeks, you know, really getting my head into all of this, was I thought, I've started to think that the kind of under 30 generation musicians seem to have a better relationship with the history of popular music than, say, back in the 90s. Um, which I thought was was all about regurgitating, you know, the whole CD thing was about reissuing and reselling the same thing, you know, there was endless remixes, Um, I think digital technology was wasted uh, really in just sampling and sampling other people's music. I don't see that now, I think it's, it's just much more original. People are taking on influences and giving it their own thing, you know. Um, so, I, you know, in, in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think we've reattached ourselves to the traditions of music. But then you've got me thinking that maybe it is a very, very much a subjective thing. So, uh, you know, it's true. Mm. Uh, Vicky, and then. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing about criticism, I think, is, is very important. And, you know, the, the comment you made uh, about not being able to write something that that you felt um, an opinion that you just thought, well, you obviously just thought, well, that's going to just get me into so much trouble, it's not going to be worth it. And yet you felt it was important enough to air it here. And I think that's that's really that's a really worrying thing, isn't it? We, have to, we all have to acknowledge the fact that we live in a, a climate where if you want to test out an idea, if you have an opinion, maybe, maybe it's you're 90% sure of it, but perhaps you're just testing out an idea, you know. Um, We don't have that that freedom to be able to have those kind of conversations, and criticism is becoming much more the, um, you know, there are people that take on the persona of having a position, and we we assign that role to them now, don't we, on social media or in, in the columns of the newspapers and magazines. Um, we know what those particular critics are going to say and what opinions they hold and we leave it to them to, to make that argument um, because it is just too it is very very difficult to, to be able to, to tentatively test out an, an idea and you know let's face it most of the issues that we face don't have very straightforward answers to them and we need the ability to be able to tentatively have a discussion about these things in a free kind of way in order to find out you know to get to to closer to a truth and I think that's the thing that's so missing I mean I find it very missing at the Royal Academy at the moment partly because everybody's on Zoom and I think that the lack of face-to-face interaction within creative organizations is very very damaging because it stops that kind of nuanced conversation Um, but also because pe- because people are obviously scared um, of the consequences. But I mean, I think the, the cause for optimism is that having seen an organisation like the RA on the inside, I think they are actually very keen to connect with an audience. It's just that there's a real sense of they don't know who the audience is. There's a real. I think this is where the Brexit thing slightly comes in. Is that I think that as a moment in time was quite disruptive. Obviously politically disruptive, but it was very disruptive for any organisation that is audience facing because they kind of didn't know. They don't know who they're talking to really. Um, and so I think 
I think what ought to happen is that anyone with an opinion or a critical opinion about programming, say what the Tate's doing or, or you know what the theatre company or production's doing, I think we should be writing more letters. <laughs> I think we should be writing in, write mm. to the director, the chief executive of the Royal Academy, and say, you know, why have you done this? Why is your label saying this? This exhibition, you know, just express an opinion because I think what will happen is that we'll all be amazed that actually these things are much more fluid than, than we really think they are. There's definitely no top-down uh, you know, intellectual elite meeting in a room where everybody decides what's happening. Um, the writing of exhibition labels happens as a solitary task. Some curator somewhere is writing a label um, and they're just trying to do the right thing a lot of the time. They're just, they're just kind of responding to... A, a, a wider climate and and being pushed in a in a direction without it being a conscious thing. I mean, this is what's happening with the Francis Bacon exhibition at the RA as we speak. The labels are being rewritten because there's a there's a sort of general fear. And um, you know, I say things like, "Shouldn't we have a discussion about the way labels are written?" Um, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, okay, we could do that. You know, so it's like, <laughs> sort of, um, these things are really up for grabs. And so anybody with an opinion can really make a difference. That's, that's my feeling and anyway, and that's cause for optimism. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got, a, I've got a few points to, to reply to. Yes, art does have the right to be factually incorrect. I'll go get back to cabaret. It deals accurately, very touchingly, I speak as a Jewish person, the anti-Semitisms. But the way they have made that particular casting decision, I feel that the production team have actually erased a particularly vile and less widely known aspect of the Nazi ideology. And I don't think that level of factual inaccuracy, in my opinion, can be tolerated. Um, On the subject of criticism, um, yes, I think there is cause for optimism in the way that criticism is going. Um, I think it's a very fair comment that the decline of print media has impacted on the quality of criticism. And whilst, uh, and I'll polish my own halo, some online criticism is extremely good. Um, <laughs> there is also absolute bloody drivel out there of people who, it's great, you can set up your own blog, the barriers to entry are non-existent, mm. which is fabulous. But there are people who are out there who are writing what amounts to a theatre review that's little more than an 11-year-old school child's account of my visit to the theatre. And um, (laughs) it's shallow, there's no analysis, there's no challenge. So it's very important to to, to sift out the the, the wheat from the chaff. But I would would say yes, I would say there is some optimism there and there is scope to be some optimistic in the critical world. Um, In answer to the comment about the, art, the impact of Brexit on the arts world in general and I'll look at the theatre world and I would completely agree with you in no way did they embrace the opportunity or the artistic opportunity that Brexit could have been their broad attitude has been to mock it and uh, to mock it quite harshly if I look at Julie Burchill and Jane Robbins play People Like Us which sold out the Union Theatre mm. back in 2017 in a way that the Union Theatre had never known advanced bookings mm. like it ever and the critics absolutely hated it, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a great shame. Um, so, so the theatre world, I'm sorry, has completely mocked and scorned whatever potential Brexit 
Mayor Wofford. And as for what to go and see at the theatre, a very simple short reaction, and I've got, I'm, not a, I've got, I'm not a producer, I've got no money in it whatsoever, but habeas corpus, uh, the Menier, currently on until the middle of February, <coughs> an old Alan Bennett farce from the 1970s. It is immaculately performed, the comedy is brilliant, I think it's very brave of the Menier to put it on because it's a very politically incorrect piece of theatre, going back, gosh, 50 odd years, but it's brilliant. Mm. Good. All right. Can we thank everybody? And um, thank you all for showing up and making some such interesting points. I mean, our, our speakers were great. You were great. I just feel like there are so many issues to discuss here, which obviously I knew right from the start, <laughs> and there are no real answers. Um, but hopefully, you know, over the next uh, year or so, we'll be organising more events like this, and we can start teasing out some of these issues a bit in a bit more detail and um, seeing where we get with that. But it was, you know, great. I really enjoyed it, I have to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um,